All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all. We're going to continue our worship of God by studying his word. So if you'd open up your Bible to Acts 2. So if you'd follow along as I read, we'll pick up in verse 41. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them, them being this new community of faith, the local church there in Jerusalem. So 3,000 people baptized, 3,000 people added to membership. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So Luke here pauses the flow of the narrative and he installs a kind of parenthetical state of the church. Where are, what's the condition of these people? This is a summary. There are a couple of moments like this where he stops the narrative flow and summarizes what these people are about, gives you kind of a snapshot of the early church. And so we're going to really slow down here and spend three weeks in verses 41 through 47, this important snapshot of what the church is and what the church does when we gather for worship. This is the earliest document of what the church did from day one. They're dripping wet from their baptism. 3,000 brand new believers, what are you gonna do? It's day one, and what they're gonna do is devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the breaking of bread, and to fellowship, and to prayer. So at the turn of the 21st century, a number of books, you might be aware of the, what was called the emerging conversation, or the emergent church. And a lot of books were being written uh, that were down in the mouth about the church. You know, who needs the church? The church is this old, dated thing. God's doing something new. Revolutionary stuff is on the uh, horizon for us. So kind of ditch the church and let's go do something else. Uh, Very hip, cool, kind of trendy-sounding things were associated with the new way moving forward. And in response to a lot of those books that were being written, Uh, An excellent book was written by uh, two brothers. Um, One is a pastor named Kevin DeYoung, and the other is a friend of his who's a solid believer who is an award-winning sports writer, Ted Kluck. And they wrote a book called Why We Love the Church, I love the subtitle, In Praise of Institutions and Organized Religion. (laughs) And in the introduction of that book and responding to uh, critics of the church, who needs the church type books, In the introduction, they they say, they point out that a lot of these who needs the church books, they all sound alike. They're basically using the exact same play buttons, and it sounds so much alike one from another that you could mad lib it. Now, that might be dating me, but you might be familiar with mad lib. And here's what they say in the book. Here's a quote, the mad lib. The institutional church is so pejorative adjective. When I go to church, I feel completely negative emotion. The leadership is totally adjective you would use to describe Richard Nixon. (laughs) And the people are noun that starts with un. The services are adjective you might use to describe going to the dentist. The music is adjective you would use to describe the singing of Barney. And the whole congregation is choose among passive, comatose, hypocritical, or Rush Limbaugh Republicans. The whole thing makes me medical term. (laughs) I had no choice but to leave the church. My relationship with spiritual noun is better than ever. Now I meet regularly with my relational noun, plural, and talk about noun that could be the focus of a liberal arts degree and Jesus. 
We really care for each other. Sometimes we even choose among, pray for each other, feed the homeless together, or share power tools. This is church like it was meant to be. After all, insert where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of you, or the letter kills but the spirit gives life, or we don't have to go to church, we are the church. I'm not saying everyone needs to do what I've done, but if you are tired of compound phrase that begins with institutional or ends with as we know it, I invite you to join the noun with political overtones and experience spiritual noun like you never will by sitting in a, choose among the following architectural put-downs. Wooden pew, steepled graveyard, stained glass mausoleum, or glorified concert hall week after week. When will the biblical noun starting start being the same biblical noun? And you can see what they're driving at, right? So what we're looking at these next three weeks and in the focus study that starts on September the 21st, which I'd encourage you to register for, is we're going to be trying to do a deep dive into why the church matters. What is the church? Why does the church matter? And what is gathered worship all about? And how does gathered worship, how is that part of God's design for building you up in Christ, for making you strong in Christ? What did they do when they gathered? So two points this morning. You are strengthened by scripture as we gather around the word. So the focus this morning is about the word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So gathering around the word. Again, Luke gives a summary. You see down there in your text in verse 42, a summary of this new community. They're devoted to four practices. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, and we'll see that has a, there's a lot there. Third, breaking of bread, and fourth, the prayer. So the word just devoted, you see that word devoted, that word means to attach oneself to. It has to do with a regular practice. It has to do with being faithful to something, persisting in something because you know it matters. And they devoted themselves, persisted in, were faithful to these four things because they knew they mattered. And the first thing, it's interesting, the very first thing that they were marked by is a hunger to be taught the word of God. They were devoted to the teaching of the apostles. Now, that makes sense. You think about it. So every Sunday here at Brook Hills, uh, we finish our gathering by reciting what? The Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, right? So go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Then what? Teaching them to observe everything Jesus commanded his people. So that makes sense where we are in the text is Peter just announced the good news. 3,000 people were cut to the heart. 3,000 people were baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now what are the 3,000 people going to do? Teach them to observe everything Jesus has. It's time to learn. Ring the school bell. It's time to learn. These brand new disciples dripping wet from their baptism and they say, give us the word of God. Teach us, strengthen us by the word of God. Commenting on our passage in Acts 2, the late British scholar John Stott wrote these words. One might perhaps say that the Holy Spirit opened a school in Jerusalem that day. Its teachers were the apostles whom Jesus had appointed and there were 3,000 pupils in kindergarten. The people of God flourish under the ministry of the word. That's, that's a big idea. The people of God flourish under the ministry of the word. 
of the word. You think about how God does everything in the Bible. He does everything by his word. His word is the executive arm of his sovereignty. He creates the world by his word. He speaks, let there be light. Here comes the light, right? He, he speaks, he creates his people by his word. He creates the church by his word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. He created you. Your belief, your repentance and faith, that came to life by the word of God, acted upon by the spirit of God in your soul. Here's what James says, James 1 verse 18. Of his own will, that's the divine sovereign will, of his own will, he, God, brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So the first creation comes into the being by the spoken word of God, and he's saying the new creation comes into the being by the spoken word of God. Even when you read the story of the Old Testament, you read through it, and whenever God's people had been wayward, but whenever they were about to turn back in God's direction, he was about to revive his people, and there was a season of spiritual renewal, that season of spiritual renewal is always directly related to the recovery of the word of God. The recovery of God's word being carefully taught, held up in high esteem before the people, humbly received by God's people. The church is strengthened by God's spirit through God's word. They asked the question to Martin Luther, how did the Protestant Reformation happen? I mean, this is against odds on every, on every score. Nobody could have predicted this sort of turnaround would take place here in the 16th century. And here's what Luther said. He explained it this way. I simply taught, preached, and translated the Bible. <laughs> then, while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friend Philip, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing the word did it all. <laughs> it's the, the story, the legendary power of the word of God. Again, book of Ezekiel, vision of the valley of the dry bones. This is the condition. God is saying, this is the condition of my people. And what does he say to Ezekiel to do? Preach to the bones. Preach to the, to the valley of deadness. And the spirit begins to move in the valley as the word and the spirit come together. The dynamic duo in the Bible is word and spirit. In Acts, Luke loves to personify the word, as if the word is the protagonist, as if you could, you could rename the Acts of the Apostles the Acts of the Word of God on the move. The, the Word of God has arms and legs and feet, and it's running through the nations in the book of Acts, and it's just conquering. Everywhere the Word goes, it conquers. Everywhere the Word goes, people get free, people get joy in the gospel, I'll just show it to you, a couple of illustrations. Acts chapter six, verse seven. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number. Acts 12, 24, another catch up, kind of what's going on here. But the word of God spread and multiplied. Acts 13, 49, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. All the way, that just keeps punctuating the, the narrative of the book of Acts. The word is doing its thing. The word is doing the work. The word is conquering kingdoms. The word is breaking through cold and unresponsive hearts. And you get all the way to the very last verses of the book of Acts and it's announced that the apostle is bound, but the word isn't. It's the apostle is there, he's in chains, he's bound there in jail, and yet the word is unbound. 
I love picturing that brand new community of faith. And what do they want? They want the apostles' doctrine, which begs the question, what was the doctrine of the apostles? What were the apostles teaching? So the apostles' enduring legacy was to show us Christ. To show us Christ. What what did Paul say about the message of the apostles? He said, let me summarize it in three words. We preach Christ, (laughs) not ourselves. We preach Christ. So we're going to see portions of their sermons And we're going to see that. In the book of Acts, you're going to see them preaching. We'll eavesdrop on the preaching of the apostles. And they're preaching Christ. They're preaching his cross, his resurrection, his glorious ascension at God's right hand, his throne, his inbreaking kingdom through the spirit. And and when the apostles start writing books, so 33 AD, they're not writing yet. First one's going to come in about 15 years, James. So they're not writing things yet. Right now they're preaching Jesus and then they're going to start writing under divine inspiration about the glories of Jesus. And what they're going to do when they start writing, you just read the letters that come right after the book of Acts, is they open the Old Testament scriptures and what do they do? They preach Christ. That's what Jesus taught them to do in Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus. And for 40 days between that time and the ascension, Jesus taught them how the law and the prophets and the writings speak concerning me. And they learned that and they believed that. So they started turning to Old Testament texts and telling the people of God, listen, all of that is fulfilled in Jesus. That's what they're saying page after page. Jesus is the one we were waiting for. He's the one who fulfills the hopes and the story of Israel. He is the last Adam. He is the son of Abraham the son of David, the new Moses. Even Jesus' own life, you can see this mapped in the stories of the gospels that are related in the pages of the gospels, that Jesus himself is a remnant of one. He faithfully walks in the footsteps of Old Testament Israel. Out of Egypt, God calls his son. He goes down into the waters, just like Israel went down into the waters. He goes into the wilderness right after that, and and he's tempted for 40 days symbolic of the 40-year temptation of the people of Israel. Every element of the Old Testament story of Israel is fulfilled in Jesus. Every promise that's made in the Old Testament is or will be fulfilled through the person and work of Jesus. So when we studied, last week when we studied that very first Christian sermon that Peter preaches, we saw that Peter preached Christ from three Old Testament texts. He said, open your Bible to the book of Joel. And then he said, now flip over with me to Psalm 16. Now flip over with me to Psalm 110, and he preached Christ from those passages. Professor Fred Sanders teaches systematic theology at Biola, and uh, I love his down-to-earth description about the formation of the New Testament. Get this. The oldest method of teaching Christian theology was to select an Old Testament text, say Psalm 8, Psalm 110, etc., and explain Christ from it. After they did this for a while, it was so successful, they pulled a bunch of it together and called it the New Testament. That is awesome. And that's about the way it went down. In the New Testament, you get to hear the apostles flawlessly preaching Christ from the Hebrew Scriptures, from the Old Testament. And so as these disciples, they gather on the day of Pentecost, 33 AD, and the apostles are just beginning their public body of work. You're going to fast forward 15 years, two letters are going to start circulating, Galatians and James, and it's a strong start. It's a pretty, it's a thunderclap, right? If you've read those two letters, that is a pretty amazing 
start. By the time we get to the end, toward the end of the first century, we've got the complete body of work of the apostles' doctrine. And so for us, here, in 2022, to be devoted to the apostles' doctrine means you and I feed on everything from blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Two, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Two, so we do not lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. Two, put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Two, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first to religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world, to see what love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God and so we are, to I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Church, this is the apostles' doctrine. This is the teaching that strengthens the church. This is our hope in the throes of anguish and at the funeral of a dear friend or a loved one. This is our truth in a world that's in a fog of confusion. This is Christ revealed to us in scripture, in Romans, who, who is Jesus in Romans? He's the son of David and the son of God. In Corinthians, he's the last Adam. In Galatians, he's redeemed us from the curse of the law. In Ephesians, he's the head over the church. In Philippians, every knee will bow before him. In Colossians, he's the image of the invisible God. In Thessalonians, he's the soon coming king. In Timothy, he's the mediator between God and man. In Titus, he's our great God and our savior. In Philemon, his kingdom is turning the slaves into brothers. In Hebrews, he's the author and finisher of our faith. In James, he's the judge standing at the door. In Peter, he's the living stone and the chief shepherd. In John, he's the true God and eternal life. In Jude, he's the only wise God and our savior. And in Revelation, he's the first and the last, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the strength and the foundation. This is the rock beneath the church's feet. You stand here or you fall. That's what the apostles said. We got no other doctrine except this truth, this faith, once for all delivered to the saints, stand here or crumble. Paul was not overstating it when he said, we preach Christ, that's all we preach. Church, I don't know what you came in feeling you need the most this morning, but what you need the most is to see the glory, power, and grace of Jesus Christ the crucified, risen, and now reigning Lord of glory. That's, that's what you most fundamentally need. That's what I most fundamentally need. That's why we even craft the songs, Daniel and his team craft the songs that they craft so that we might sing ourselves more deeply into the hope we have in Jesus. 
Here's the sobering reality, though. Nothing weakens the church more than a Christless pulpit. And it's sobering because of this truth. Moralism doesn't save, but man, it can grow a church. But here's the thing about moralism is it leaves our Jesus substitutes unconfronted. It leaves the listener in the dark about the glorious and potentially unsettling implications of Christ's upside-down kingdom, his wrath-absorbing death, and his culture-transcending authority. Nothing weakens the church more than a Christless pulpit. That's the negative way to frame it. Here's another way to come at it from the other side, on the affirmation side. Here's what we're affirming. Every Sunday, we want our eyes looking in the right place. We want our eyes looking up and out, looking to Jesus who forgives sin, looking to Jesus who gives rest to the weary, looking to Jesus whose promises will outlast our sorrows, to Jesus who is worthy of our total and absolute allegiance. That's what we want to look out every week, and when we look at it, we're getting stronger. Even if you don't feel it at a conscious level, every time we look at Jesus in this way, God is making us stronger. He's giving us foundations. You want to be strong? Gather around the word. You want to be strong? Point number two, meditate on the word. And so now I want to pivot for the rest of our time from the corporate application of the centrality of the word to the personal application of your devotion, my devotion as Christians. When we're scattered, when we're not here, are we devoted to the apostles' teaching? Or is it just an hour, right? Or is it a lifestyle of devotion to God's word? You, you, again, Psalm 1 is huge for us as a church. We talk about it all the time, roots and reach, right? The idea that if you want roots, you got to get your tree planted by rivers of water. And what are the rivers of water in Psalm chapter 1? It's the word of God. The person who meditates day and night on the law of the Lord is always bearing fruit, is flourishing, is an evergreen. We want to be evergreen Christians, and there's only one way to be an evergreen Christian. Get your roots down into the soil of God's word. Drink deeply from the sacred texts, God's self-revelation in Scripture. So a few things for us to think about personally. One, read for a change. Read for a change. Don't just read for knowledge. That's been done before, and Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for it. Read for a change. The Apostle Paul, he would say, all Scripture is breathed out by God for a reason. It's breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That is, God breathed out the scriptures so we could be new, so we could be different, so we could be changed. So if we're reading the text and we don't come away thinking about how we can be changed by the word of God, then we're not doing what we're called to do by the apostles under divine inspiration. So a few things to think about under that. Commune with God. Is your time in God's word an act of worship? What are you after tomorrow morning when you open the Bible? And I would propose to you that what you need to be after above all things is communing with your Lord. He speaks to you in his word. You speak to him in prayer. It's a relationship. He talks, then you talk. 
he talks in the Bible, you talk in prayer. Commune with God. Ask the text as you're reading, what is this revealing to me about God? Westminster Divines, a few hundred years ago, and they're putting this together, and they're trying to answer some questions about how can we understand the Bible better. The Bible had recently been translated into the tongue of people who could read it for themselves, and so they're saying, here, let's give you a sense of the shape and the big ideas that are in the Bible. So they created the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and they asked the question, what does the Bible primarily teach? And their answer was, the Bible primarily teaches what man must believe about God. That is, the Bible is the introduction of God to his covenant people. It's God coming out of hiding and saying, this is what I am. This is what I'm like. This is how I save. This is my will for your life and for the world. Commune with God. Ask him in prayer, Lord, let this chapter convince me that you're a rock and a redeemer. That's where David goes. He's talking about the self-revealing word of God in Psalm 19, and, and he ends with, let this lead me to the rock. Let this lead me to the redeemer. It's an act of worship. I love this quote. <clears throat> One student at an evangelical seminary in the United States stated in an interview that at times the seminary's emphasis on academic excellence creates a campus climate where attaining spiritual depth is difficult. Professors encourage students to have an intimate relationship with God but the amount of work assigned is so great and the other commitments required of students are so numerous, this becomes a virtual impossibility. I get the sense that many of my fellow students are going into ministry equipped to parse, translate, and exegete, but spiritually dead or distant from God who speaks in and through the text. Oh, don't read the Bible like a Pharisee. Don't read the Bible parsing and exegeting, but not only, right, but stopping there and not moving toward the Lord who reveals himself in scripture. And another way to help that along is turn it to prayer. Turn your Bible reading to prayer. Prayer has a way, especially with your Bible open, prayer has a way of making your time in the word an act of worship. It has a way of making your time in the word an act of faith. If you've never read Donald Whitney's book, Praying the Bible, I would encourage you to get it. It's a very short book. Get it Read it, read it with your small group, and then most importantly, try it. In your small group, do the thing. Pray God's word back, just choose the psalm of the day. If you're meeting on September whatever, then take the number of the date and go to that psalm and pray it back to God. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because he said, you search the scriptures, but you're not coming to me. The scripture, if you read them right, the scriptures would point you in my direction, would cause you to come and run to me. For years as our kids grew up, we would, uh, we would do that every night. We would take the psalm of the day and we'd just hand out the verse, you know. We'd do, it's five of us in the house. And so if it's a long psalm, we're not going to necessarily try to conquer the whole thing, but we'll just say, hey, dad will take verse one, mom will take verse two, Hunter take verse three, we'll take verse four, Ellie take verse five, and pray it out. You can say amen, and then we're done. And it was our way of just saying, these, these are prayers. <laughs> let's, let's pray God's word right here. Let's learn to pray the word of God. And third, under this point, humble yourself. Humble yourself. God reveals himself not to the proud, but to the humble. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. He reveals himself, as he says in Matthew, to little children. And he hides it from the wise. 
Here's another quote from author Jonathan Pennington, his excellent book, Reading the Gospels Wisely. He writes, our emphasis, therefore, should be on our dispositions and obedience to live and love according to the teachings of Scripture, which is certainly the grandest and deepest reason for God's inscripturation of his word into the Bible. I'm not suggesting, however, an either-or choice between a humble, faithful, open reading and a skilled, rigorous, exegetical reading. Both are to be sought in full, but the priority is the posture. A person who is deficient in skills, and who is not, but seeks to read with an openness to learn from the otherness of the text and the God behind it can be a better reader than a methodologically skilled exegete who reads without a posture and disposition of humble teachability, the greatest of intellectual virtues. So read humbly. Fourth, read attentively. So this could be a whole talk about observation and interpretation as you're engaging with God's word, but asking questions like, what am I supposed to notice here? What words stand out? What ideas stand out? What's the author, the human author, and ultimately the divine author trying to bring to my attention in this passage? I wanna offer you four terms that I often employ to keep my reading of God's word as well, a well-rounded exercise for spiritual transformation. Four words, facts, faith, acts, and hopes. Kind of a fourfold grid. I'm not gonna unpack it all here, but just try to notice the facts. By facts, I mean the setting, the context, the flow of where you are, what's come before the passage, what's coming after the passage, the culture, the historical background type of thing, and then the words and phrases and how those words and phrases interact with each other, how the argument proceeds if you're in the epistles and so forth. Right? So answering the who, what, when, where, why questions is going to help you and me arrive at understanding. You're querying the text, you're asking the text, you're looking for things, and you're looking at a surface level, right? So what are the words that are being used and the arguments and, and clauses and dependent clauses and all the rest, you're kind of using that aspect of things, but you're also doing some digging. And a good study Bible can help you do some digging about who the author is, what's the date of the writing, what's the background or setting, what's something about the audience that you might need to know. So facts, all of that's kind of under facts. Second, faith. So why do, we, why do we read God's word and process it through the prism of faith? Well, because scripture tells us that. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So the, the word of God is meant to increase our faith, to increase our grip and our trust in God. So you're right to read every passage in the Bible with a hope of and a goal of trusting God more. So under faith, you want to, ask these kinds of questions. You want to ask, how does this text shape my understanding of God? How does this text speak to the core doctrines of the gospel or the Christian faith? So facts, faith, acts is next. Why are we looking at every passage in the Bible about how we can apply it to our lives? Because James said, don't just read it. Don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. Paul said the word of God was breathed out for training in righteousness. So it's supposed to take, it's a people mover. It's supposed to take you somewhere, away from something and towards something. How is it changing your life, your habits, your practices, your, your beliefs? So under Acts, I want to consider what action is God's word directing me to? 
And if it's not specifically commanding me to something, I'm asking, is there an example to follow in this text? Does any character in this story or narrative serve as a warning? Facts, faith, acts, and finally, hopes. And why do we look at every text in God's word wanting it to shape our hopes because the Apostle Paul said in Romans 15, 4, whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may have hope. If you don't walk away with the text with hope, you left too soon. Everything that was written was written for our hope. So get back in there and get some hope or you're not finished yet with the passage or the passage maybe better is not finished with you. So under hopes, how does the passage encourage me to live in light of what's coming? How does it encourage me to live with my sights set on eternity? How does it it help me remember the policies of the kingdom that God is bringing into the world through the church? And then finally, read in community. Read in community. It's biblical understanding is not a private affair. It's a community affair. We're growing in the knowledge of God and we're doing it together. You ever sat down with another Christian, you come away and you're like, I saw something from a different angle. I I had not considered that before and you come away really helped. That's the agenda. That's, That's the big idea. That's the genius of biblical fellowship. So a couple of things here. Learn from faithful teachers, past and present. So God has given faithful teachers who have worked very hard in the text of Scripture. doesn't mean faithful teachers are infallible. So everybody will go wrong at some point. Nobody's infallible. But many of the faithful teachers that are in print and so forth, some of them have spent their entire lives in particular doctrines or particular places in Scripture. I quoted Jonathan Pennington earlier. He has spent the last 25 years of his life focused on the Gospels in particular and the Gospel of Matthew even more in particular. When he's in Matthew, he's just turning lights on everywhere. I love reading him talk about the Gospels. It's a passion of his and he sees stuff I hadn't seen before. Derek Kidner, you want somebody to accompany you and walk you through the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs. Kidner's outstanding, a great conversation partner. You can sit down for hours and talk with Kidner about what he sees in the Psalms and learn. Not just people who write commentaries, but just good teachers. I've learned so much in my Christian life from just good teachers, faithful teachers of the Bible. R.C. Sproul, and Jonathan Pennington, Kevin DeYoung, and Jackie Hill Perry, and Jen Wilkin, and Megan Hill, and Ray Ortland, and could go on and on and on. Faithful teachers who study God's word, as well as from the past. John Newton, and Aurelius Augustine, and Athanasius, and so forth. And then learn in the company of friends. It's not just, you know, hey, let's just go consult the pros. It's let's sit down together. Let's open the book together, you and me, brothers and sisters in Christ, and let's get into the book. That's what small groups are for. Learning God's word and learning to apply God's word in our everyday lives. We are strengthened by scripture. That's sort of the, that could be a motto for everything that we do at the, at the church at Brook Hills is we're strengthened by scripture. You want to know God more deeply? Get into the word. You want to know what a godly marriage looks like? Get into the word. You want to know what it looks like to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God? Get into the word. 
You want to know more experientially what Jesus meant when he said, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free? Get into the word. Devote yourself to the apostles' teaching. 